fellow citizens. Let's, let's be let's be, be bluntly honest. Who's the heavyweight champion of the world? In my opinion, still and perhaps always will be the greatest. There's so much there. Okay, yeah. What are we doing, great champion? You help to unite our nation. The cry for freedom has only sport to pay attention to the voices that are doing the framing. What we're talking about is the consumerism. Withheld and allotted only. Nobody, nobody's, nobody's calling. No, nobody, nobody, nobody's calling LeBron Black Jesus. Welcome back to Sports and Society. We're here on Saturday, July 4th. We're recording this a day early on a, on, on a holiday, no less. But uh, I'm Brad. I'm here with Kyle. How are you doing today, man? Yeah, I'm doing well enough. We watched Hamilton last night. Did you all watch it? No, I told Sarah that I'm not. I, we will watch it at some point, but I'm not super enthusiastic about it. Mm-hmm. Is it yeah, worth I it? Enjoy- Should I be excited about it? I don't know if you need to be excited about it, uh, but that may be coming from one that is kind of ignorant of a lot of the beauty that can exist in Broadway. But overall, it's um, it's quite exceptional, or it feels exceptional, and there are parts of it that are extremely inspiring, and uh, a lot of it is just quite impressive Um so overall, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and it, it was kind of fun just engaging with the in- event of it all. Hmm. But it was also true that uh, we had our qualms about it. That, you know, here's this uh, production about the founding fathers coinciding with Independence Day as the country falls apart and Disney makes millions of dollars off all of those things coming together at once. <laughs> So it was problematic, but also pleasant just to zone out and watch a show and be entertained for a minute. <laughs> yeah. Very good. But uh, how about you? What's uh, What's been in your in your sort of perspective on sports this week? Um, so I've watched a little bit of sports, which has been the first time that's happened in quite a while. I watched a little bit of uh, soccer, English Premier League soccer. Um, and enjoyed it to a degree. I didn't feel the need to sit there for the whole period. I kind of enjoyed more watching, you know, 15-minute highlights, which is interesting to maybe have a conversation at some point about match of the day and why that is perhaps mm-hmm. the best way to engage with soccer, um, mm-hmm. I might argue. Um, but uh, interesting to get back into that and then just uh, watching as the NBA plans fall apart but also being – really pleased in some ways to hear um you know in some ways just hearing solid leadership feels amazing at this point because mm-hmm. there seems to be so little of it uh and so to hear adam silver when asked you know is everything a go for this he's kind of like everything is on the table uh nothing is certain at this point uh feels really just refreshing to hear someone speak with that level of uncertainty and be comfortable living in the gray that way i don't expect Mm -hmm. leaders in that space and it's refreshing to hear them him be comfortable there Mm -hmm. that makes me want to get to know the rest of the leadership in the nba Mm. I, i wonder how much of it is a team environment in the sense that adam adam silver's messaging is from a collective and he's the voice of it and or to what extent is it him truly being this individual leader that you and I both admire so much or at least find refreshing maybe is a better way to say it. 
Yeah, I don't know if I admire anyone in that kind of position, but yeah. um, at the same time, I can't imagine someone doing a much better job than he is yeah, doing that's with so true. it. Um, and I do. I, I think it's right. And I think there's some interesting stuff there. Leadership is so fascinating for me. Um, I used to find it so off-putting, and I still do the study of leadership. Uh, I mm-hmm. find it very off-putting, but it is so fascinating to see someone like that and just know how much it matters on some level. Mm-hmm. Like, um, so I, I don't know either, but I have to think that if it is a team atmosphere, it's only that way because Adam Silver has made it that way and allowed it mm-hmm. to be that way because that's what you can go either way on that. And I'm sure we'll talk about this a little with our main topic, but leadership creates culture and, um, the culture you have is massively important in this day and age. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's well said. You yeah, know, I, I, I will share. Uh, I'll um, I have to share these videos with you, Kyle, because I know uh, we have a shared admiration for Mister or Doctor Bruce Hall, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> who I, I don't think I've told you I'm doing uh, work with again. Um, oh, great! So I'm helping with some of his class stuff and some research stuff on leadership for sustainability, and he is like pulls no bones about it. Like when we talk about environmental stuff, we don't talk about facts. We talk mm-hmm. about appealing to emotion. We talk about uh, echo chambers. We talk about uh, confirmation bias. That's how you change minds, not by sharing facts. Um, mm-hmm. So interesting. Uh, we will, I'm sure, have more thoughts on leadership here coming up. Wonderful. I feel like it's just worth reiterating that it, it, it's so remarkable to me, but also maybe from an outside perspective, like the most predictable thing possible that we arrived uh, at the same individual in the pursuit of our professional interests. Yes, for those that don't know, Kyle, uh, I believe Bruce was a large, uh, perhaps the primary source for some of your uh, graduate school work. Yeah, the the centerpiece, the foundational stone, I mean, yeah. Yeah, it was, I didn't realize what I was interested in until I came across Bruce Hall. And then he was my uh, advisor at Virginia Tech for my master's work. So just, uh, uh, and we had no idea this was happening. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. But uh, how about yeah. yourself? What are you paying attention to? Well, so leadership is somewhat part of one thing I, I was paying attention to, and this is building on something I mentioned last week that is probably mostly meaningless, but I don't know why I keep paying attention to this story, but I do. <laughs> but this is Under Armour pulling out of their contract uh-huh. with UCLA. I, I guess it is. It's for a lot of the reasons we tried to mention last week that prove how messed up and crazy and bizarre the NCAA is and how crazy college sports in America is. And so I I think it my what pulls me in is that it is a lens into that space that is seemingly hard to access because it is so gigantic uh, and such a, a massive entity and the problems within it seem massive. So the scale and the size of it all makes it like hard to access sometimes mm. or even think about uh, effectively to like get anywhere with my thoughts. So Under Armour pulling out of UCLA because UCLA is uh, operating at a deficit. And so I was curious what that deficit was and what's going on with that. Where did it come from and why is it such a big deal to Under Armour? And so I was just digging in a little bit and 
there are a lot of parts of it that are interesting, but maybe the part that is like funny <laughs> or at least intriguing a little bit is that uh, part of the reason they went over budget last year is because Chip Kelly, who is the new coach at UCLA, took the nutrition budget of the football team from $1 million a year to $5.4 million. Ooh, wow. Yeah. And That's unfathomable. It really is. And it's funny because every step of the way, people have always like wondered about Chip Kelly's secrecy. And people like early in his career, looking back at this now, um, wondered like how he had so much success along the way when he got somewhere and why there was like a, such a, a significant change in the program. And it was often um, attributed to what you were talking about is that apparently he is kind of one of these dynamic, charismatic people that can create a culture in a, in a mm -hmm. space. And so even if he is proving that he's not all that good at recruiting anymore, um, he does create a culture. And it's interesting that part of his recipe is uh, making sure his, the athletes have the absolute best food and nutrition programs humanly possible. Hmm. Um, it's also true, and this is another part of it all that, again, digging into the nuts and bolts of why NCAA is crazy, but to get rid of Jim Mora, their last coach, they had to pay him a $12.5 million buyout. Ooh. Ooh. And also in the same year, they dumped Steve Alford from basketball, and his buyout was $3.5 million. And Chip Kelly in that same year signed a $23 million contract that had a huge undisclosed signing bonus. So that's just <laughs> incredible amounts of money in a weird space for weird reasons and doing weird things that seem so far away from what the product is and what it's for. Yeah, that's – wow. I, you know, on the some level, it's fascinating because when I hear nutrition, in some ways um, – I have to confess, I'm not mad at that. Like, if there's something I think that they should be spending money on, that would be, you right. know, what it would be. Um, right. Which is just, it brings up so many other questions. Um, mm -hmm. But also just takes me back, you know, at my first place I go to is as an Arsenal fan, uh, going back to when Arsene Wenger came to Arsenal and changed everything because at that point in the EPL, people were still smoking and mm -hmm. and like mm -hmm. drinking five pints after games and stuff like this. And mm -hmm. part of his success came down to changing all of that. Um, mm -hmm. But it also feels so counter to the narrative that we put out there about these coaches, about what's important in a coach, mm -hmm. um, which is interesting. But man, that amount of money, I can just not imagine how you can spend – five and a half million dollars on feeding a hundred people for less than a year. Right. Yeah. It, it, it made me think of a couple of things. One is what were they eating before? Mm -hmm. Right. Like how, how, why is that contrast that much based on what they uh, had previously been doing? Uh, and then it was tied to a couple other funny things, kind of, uh, but also real things. And that was uh, Man City beating Liverpool 4-0. And in Pop's uh, post-game interview, the coach of Man City, he's like, what do you think? They're like, what do you think? That was an incredible game. He's like, yeah, they drank a lot of beer last week, uh, talking about the Liverpool players. Um But then also, I don't know if you saw this little kind of minor story too, but the meals that were in place for the MLS teams that arrived first, 
uh, were these really pathetic looking uh, oh, fire festival awful. sandwiches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, that just raised, apparently that was kind of an anomaly. Like it was like a first day thing. Like, I don't know. Um, as I read about it more, I it, like the glamour of that story was taken away and that was kind of an exception. But it also raised questions of like, what these leagues are attempting to do are so such logistical nightmares is one way to put it. Mm-hmm. But I was just thinking about the labor mm-hmm. that is making it possible and how we don't hear a lot about that. We hear a little bit, but to hear a little bit, you have to kind of work pretty hard for it. And so I came coming across the a story in the Orlando Sentinel that was saying like one thing the NBA hasn't reported on yet is that all the hotel workers and food workers will be leaving the bubble every day to go oh, home. Yeah, that's uh, I've seen that, and I don't know how. That's the big part. Like I don't know how you make it work when that's the case. Um, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and then it, even what it, I was trying, I was looking at Google Maps of Wide World of Sports because I was just trying to even too. I was like, what is this place? Like what, what, we don't even question that a place like this exists that has this potential to host two professional leagues at the same time for a couple months. Well, I yeah, I think um, I don't know if you saw Dame Lillard also came out this week and said he didn't really have high hopes of people following the behavior stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do think it's important that you have to like when you look at the lives these guys were leading beforehand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you expect them to change that in this way? Mm-hmm. I just really don't have much hope about that. What I mean, and, you know, it's you know, I it's weird stuff. Like I can't believe I'm going to say this on the podcast, and I'm going to apologize in Go advance before this. Um, but uh, you know, whether you're married or not, these guys are probably having sex, you know, three to five times a week. Um, yeah, and now there's not going to be anybody for them to be with for two months, and we expect that to be sustainable. Right, uh, right. I don't understand how that's even begins to be okay, uh, something that we can expect them to do. Well, and I'll tack on what we were already saying about food. Yeah, like I, I, a lot of these NBA players have personal chefs that mm-hmm. live in their home. <laughs> that prepare them like five star meals three times a day and four snacks and protein shakes and their entire team is often like ten individuals yeah. that care for their body. And so how is that gonna work? Yeah, doing everything. I mean answering phone calls, um yeah. scheduling everything, driving them places. Yeah, I don't I don't understand how any of it's gonna work. Yep. Yeah. But uh, it seems like it's going to happen. So mm-hmm. we shall uh, see. Although with these numbers, I, I don't know. <laughs> nine, more, last... nine more positive, I think I saw, right? Yeah, and just saw the MLBs at 31 already. Mm. So, yeah. Including my boy Malcolm Brogdon. So. Oh, is he? Yeah. Which, it, you know, sucks. there was uh, some really interesting stuff, too, of all things. I don't expect this from him, although I've, he's been growing on me through the years. When Brian Winhurst first came on ESPN, I didn't have much nice to say about him. But he's grown on me as his, as time has gone on. Um, mm-hmm. But he was talking about how um, 
you know, like the research seems to suggest you shouldn't exercise when you've been diagnosed with this because there's like potential heart and stroke ramifications of it. Mm. And yet the NBA, even for the folks that are in quarantine after testing positive, have like the teams have dropped off exercise equipment and stuff oh, wow. for them. And it's like, how do you handle that liability stuff? Yeah, it's mm-hmm. there's just so much to digest. And um, it only seems a matter of time before something goes bad. Mm-hmm. It's, it's wild I, I, I get to an exasperation point where I don't know what to say or think anymore well and I think that's the you know we, we had a long conversation before we got on the air with our state of minds about things and I just it's so immensely frustrating to me that we could be this could be happening without us being worried about it if we had leadership and uh, a country that wasn't full of assholes. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at Europe there, I have no qualms with when I see the statistics from these places in Europe with them moving forward. But with our statistics, I am not okay with it. Mm -hmm. And it's undeniable link with places like Myrtle Beach and mm-hmm. Daytona and Miami and the coast of Texas and then the poorest parts of the South. It's like the combination of like some of the all, all the worst things we have to show. Yeah, I mean, COVID parties to see mm-hmm. who gets sick first. I mean, come on, folks. It's the yeah. most Alabama thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I hear that. I also and love Alabama. You can tell Tyler that to his face. So, um. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, the the last piece then of maybe something I was paying attention to this week of is uh, a completely meaningless. I found myself reading meaningless stories this week. I think I was working really hard to escape. But uh, Victor Hovland is a rookie on the PGA Tour has been driving by himself to all the tournaments. Hmm. So there's a charter jet that takes all players that want to not have to worry about travel, uh, leaving each tournament and going to the next one. And uh, Victor Hovland was essentially just like, I don't want to deal with any of that. I'm just going to drive myself. Uh, And so in the last four weeks, he's driven something like 10,000 miles. Hmm. I I just identified with it. I was like, that's what I would do too. I'd just be like, I'll see you all there. Well, it's interesting because I, um, you know, the guy, who's the guy that tested positive the first tournament back? Watney? Nick that? Watney, yeah. yeah. So the story came out that he refused the jet too and traveled himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, of course, now the, there's, you know, the, the PGA can't control what you do if you do that. And so is it right. a responsible thing to drive yourself in some right. ways to these places? And I don't, I don't know. I, I'm also fascinated. I've been, and I've been grateful for this. This has been the one bit of sports thing that I have kind of been drawn back to uh, in some ways because I've taken up playing it. Uh, but professional disc golf is back. Um, oh. It's a uh, you talk about. I mean, that's a league that has no ability to control its players whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And so it just uh, like, but it also feels small enough that maybe you can get away with it. Um, mm-hmm. I, it seems it's always it's fascinating to me, you know. Uh, to see these rates of positivity amongst um, these NBA players. Cause on some level I'm like, why is it so hot? You shouldn't like, surely you like you have all of the capacity to not put yourself in risky behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And yet these are also people that have traveled more in their entire lives than most of us can fathom. Um, yes. And uh, are d- committed to something and like being around uh, other athletes more than most of us can imagine. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it's just an interesting thing that in some ways it's only natural that we would expect a higher positivity rate among them anyway. Um, yeah, that's a good point. So I don't know. It's a, it's a weird place to watch sports from at the moment. Absolutely. But anyway, I will continue to watch my disc golf and uh, it'll be a relief in some ways, but nothing feels quite the same anymore. That's so true. I'm, I'm going to check out some disc golf today. Jomez Pro. You can watch uh, yesterday's uh, round later today. Which I w- actually right, I will well. I want to talk about that a little bit. Uh, sorry. Um, yeah. No, go for it. Uh, so there's been a big kerfuffle in the disc golf world. Um, so they started their tournament play back up last week after taking three months off, like most folks did. Um, and the day before the tournament, um, they announced. Uh, so it's kind of managed by Disc Golf Pro Tour. Um, which is a weird entity anyway. They've been trying to figure out how to monetize and become successful for a while now. So they've kind of created their own on-demand online streaming platform to watch. And then you've got uh, Jomez Pro, who's kind of the, uh, along with Central Coast Disc Golf for the two day after highlight um, shows uh, that are kind of the primo uh, stuff. So they announced the day before this tournament that they were not going to be having next day coverage, but instead had signed a contract with CBS Sports Network to put the con- the show uh, to broadcast it um, in four hour-long segments uh, in August. Um, Interesting. It is. And, like, people were furious about it, mm-hmm. um, uh, largely because, you know, they weren't getting the coverage that they had grown to expect. Um, and I have to confess, you know, like, there was a part of me that was disappointed in it, too. But I also see it as very much the right decision if you're trying to grow the sport and grow the brand. Um, right, right. And so, like, a lot of folks, they were not necessarily angry that this happened, and that, you know, went to a network, but they were mad that they were losing this to CBS Sports Network, which, again, I get, because it's not like a ton of folks watch CBS Sports Network. Um, mm-hmm. But there's just a bunch of nuance in it for me about, you know, this is really seems like the start of a conversation about whether you can do this with disc golf, like whether you can right. show disc golf in this way, but also um, like how easy is it to film uh, a disc golf tournament right. for a network right. executive? And so I, I'm just fascinated that they're um, by where it kind of goes from here, because there's significant, I mean, very significant negative uh, backlash against it. And so, uh, I, for many reasons, I see it as if you're trying to grow the sport, it's probably the right decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it raises, of course, all kinds of other questions about how much should you try and grow a sport like disc golf? Um, mm-hmm. and yeah, just, I mean, cause even from the perspective, and I'm sure you've seen this, I mean, uh, as a ball golfer, as the disc golfers would call you, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, it's annoying when you can't get a tee time at your course that you want to go play at. And so, you know, in the disc golf world, you're used to being able to stroll up and play any course you want any time. Well, what happens if you have to, you know, it's too busy for you to go out and play or, or, you know, you got a bunch of newbies out there uh, messing things up or whatever it may be. It's just, 
uh, I, but all of it resonates with me on some level. I think I would probably have done what Jomez and the, the Pro Tour did, but um, I certainly understand the other side as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, I'm wondering what terms I would use to describe the sport. Maybe like just working class, uh, and also public, and mm-hmm. it's it's free. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? uh, it's freaking free what sports can say that like other than like going to like play basketball or tennis in a public park mm-hmm. um, yeah it, it also all of that makes me think about how significant and powerful it would be were an entity like the WNBA to receive the same amount of production investment and were mm. um, ESPN ABC to Actively, proactively, in a true activist reparation sort of manner, devote the same amount of money, the same journalists, the same cameras, the same uh, advertising to the WNBA finals as they would the NBA finals. Um, it, it would, your first 10, 15 years, you'd probably operate at a loss, mm-hmm. you know? But if you budgeted for a 20-year thing, what would that mean and what would that look like? Mm-hmm. Um, but your point about like what would happen to the sport if it was monetized and made to look like the PGA Tour, um, I mean, my, my first thought is like, I, I would love the journalism. I would love the um, being able to see the, the sport on a pedestal, like that would be fun and re- really interesting and powerful, I feel like. But gosh, if it looked like the PGA Tour, <laughs> I, I don't want it to look like a PGA Tour at all. I want it to stay underground and be its own thing. But I also want those that love the sport maybe to have access to uh, a more monetized version of it to mm-hmm. some extent. Well, I think that's this uncomfortable space that you and I live in is like we love – and want to see people be able to play professional sports, I think, but we also don't want it to be polluted by money in the way that it, some of these, uh, the major leagues see, certainly seem to be. Right. Right. We know it's a contradictory position. Okay. We just live in the gray. We that's, live there. That's, that's my motto in life these days. So uh, it's where we thrive and experience anxiety all at once. <laughs> Our counselors agree with it. Um, yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should have our therapist on one week. That would be fun. <laughs> oh, my. Mm-hmm. Well, you want to talk about our main topic today? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Well, this week uh, we're talking about an, another television movie production type thing. This time it's Sunderland Till I Die, which I'm sure you have more information on it since you're the guy that has all of that uh, stuff. So do you want to share uh, a little bit about who did it and what it is? Yeah, sure. So it's a made-for Netflix documentary. Netflix was in at the beginning, and without getting too specific, it is put together, produced, directed, written uh, by a film company that are Sunderland supporters. And I think that's really important for a few reasons when it comes to critiquing and finding value or no value in a documentary like this. But um, it comes with the gloss that all Netflix documentaries come with in a lot of ways. Uh, But the central story is Sunderland was relegated 
for the 17-18 season uh, to the championship division after eight or nine years in the Premier League. Mm-hmm. And four or five of those years doing pretty well, uh, kind of being a middle table team. And I would imagine uh, from the maker's perspective, those that made the documentary, that the story was going to be about an underdog fighting back to get to the top. Mm-hmm. And what actually ended up playing out was the opposite, which is partly what makes the documentary so compelling, I think. Or if it is compelling, it's the part that is maybe the most compelling. And that is that Sunderland completely disappeared from the earth and forgot how to play soccer and dropped to the bottom of the championship and are subsequently relegated to League One, which is the third tier. So usually when teams are relegated to the championship, they're in the top five of the championship league because they have all these Premier League players and they're still really good. Uh, But Sunderland fell all the way to the bottom Losing something crazy, losing like 25 games mm-hmm. uh, is really awful. And so what the documentary is about then is uh, a team failing miserably. And it kind of has the makings of like that Mighty Ducks kind of feel. And then it's like Mighty Ducks if the Mighty Ducks lost every game. So like if the first half of the movie got built up and we're excited about this team uh, that was – going to take down goliath actually just absolutely getting pummeled not by goliath but <laughs> other davids and so it, it has a different feel than a lot of um sports footage that's out there so uh maybe that's a good start to kind of sit sit with that for a second and like what did it feel like to watch a team fail that much well yeah i think it's um uh- I think I go back to our um, talking about cricket fever because um, mm-hmm. I think it had a very similar feel in some ways in terms of a team that expected to be better than it was. Yeah. And in some ways, it's very much more revealing to follow a team that does worse than they expect to do mm-hmm. uh, and to see how they respond to that moment. Um, interestingly, Mumbai Indians came back and won the league the year after the documentary and uh, Sunderland continues to uh, do poorly, and as of the shutdown, uh, was I think sitting like twelfth in League One. Um, oh my gosh! Uh, yeah, <laughs> I like didn't the, even check that. Their first yeah. year in League One, they got into the playoffs and lost in the in the game that would have taken them back up to the championship. But this year, they're yeah, I think they're they were twelfth, and they fired another coach, and the the new owner is looking to leave. Uh, has said he's trying to sell the club again. So wow, uh, it's only gone worse in some ways since this all happened um Mm. but uh yeah really fascinating and you know i i'll just get this out of the way at the beginning my first response when uh when i was started watching it and saw leader catamole pop up on the screen is uh f and sunderland you deserve this because you supported this asshole for so many years (laughs) Lee Catamol, who could have been a decent footballer, but just decided to go after red card records instead. But anyway, uh, yeah, we'll move on from that uh, <laughs> that initial critique. But um, I I found it fascinating. I will um, I will say I really enjoyed seeing and meeting, um, I, and I thought they did a really good job. I thought um, it would have been really easy to make Martin Bain the enemy. Mm-hmm. And this, and they didn't do that, which I appreciated. Um, mm-hmm. Which is also, uh, but I do think there's something there about speaking about how the coaches. You know, I don't know how many times we heard the fans say, 
so and so didn't do this, didn't bring in these people, or we'll see. Well, this record will be on Chris Coleman or Simon Grayson's legacy. When really Martin Bain was the one making all the decisions, and yet he was not the one taking any of the heat. It seemed like mm-hmm. for it, um, right? But uh, yeah, just a, a few other facts, I guess, before we get too deep into it, is that they're owned they're owned by an American who kind of gave up. Um, and so, especially in the second transfer window, but it was pretty clear that Martin Bain was the chief executive officer, was brought in to save money. Um, and so, they, uh, starting in January, uh, the January transfer window, uh, the owner said he would not invest in the club anymore. Um, and so, there's a really interesting, one of the most interesting questions for me was just wondering and thinking about the toll that that takes on the players involved mm-hmm. um and thinking you know from a very selfish arsenal perspective you know how much of uh arsenal's underperformance perhaps could be down to not feeling like they got the commitment from ownership and above that they wanted from it um mm-hmm. uh but who knows i i'm intrigued to, to kind of dig into some of those things but anyway i've talked for a while now what do you think yeah, I think the ownership and management piece is also what was really interesting to get some insight on the ownership piece for its lack of the owner being involved in any way whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So his name is Ellis Short. He no longer owns the club. He sold the club. And I was doing a little bit of research, we got more interested in that. Apparently, uh, he has kind of like an anxiety disorder. In the sense that he doesn't do well on camera and avoids interviews as much as possible. But it also could be that he's a private equity guy and interviews aren't necessarily always a good thing for those folks. Well, he faced or for charges. owners of teams. Uh, yeah, right. He had a warrant out for his arrest for many years for some right. uh, dealings in the Asian market. Right, exactly. Uh, so they often don't want to talk about what they're up to. So that's maybe, who knows? And uh, I guess to say who knows kind of leads me into the overall impression or feeling I was left with. And I'll say more about it, but ultimately how much of this is kind of chance or how much success depends on just like the right pieces coming together at the right time. And that's Mm -hmm. not always because of human success or human error, but it's just kind of like the ebb and flows of organizations and institutions. Um, And, I guess it also led to looking more into ownership and Ellis Short. So he was losing 500,000 pounds a week on the club for the last two seasons. So every Monday morning, writing a check for 500,000 pounds to the bank, uh, 200,000 pounds of which was interest uh, just to keep the club solvent. And so people could have jobs. I'm not saying he's a hero or Robin Hood, but (laughs) that's what he was doing. And then upon his departure, he paid off all the club's debt in a cash payment for $200 million. So do with that what you want, right? <laughs> like, well, he also built that amazing new stadium for And he him. built that stadium for him and made them look like a Premier League club mm-hmm. uh, and got them the notoriety and the fan base that, the, that was there and was so large as it was when they had those successful seasons in the Premier League. But... It, it falling apart, I can't help but think that it's um, it's related, it all comes back to money, and I'm not saying anything interesting because it's so obvious, but those top clubs having a payroll that's like $250 million a year, and Sunderland having a payroll of 
uh, a fraction of that. It's like it, their payroll was sixty-four million their last year in the Premier League, and Man City's was two hundred and seventeen. So that Martin Bain can do everything he wants. <laughs> He's not going to be a top four club in the Premier League at sixty-four million dollars a year. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to happen. And so, what are we talking about then? What, are, what to what extent is this truly a failing? Um, or, or at least is it is it just a story of like what happens when you don't have two hundred and fifteen million dollars a year to pay on payroll? Uh, and so in that way, I think that's where my like uh, why am I going to like keep watching? It's because I guess I kind of want to watch what happens to humans in that space uh, and kind of see how that hu- humanity side of the story is covered. If that makes sense. Yeah, and I think you know. Martin's a hard one. I think I texted you this week and said I don't really understand him, um, and mm-hmm. I don't like his motivations. I don't are a little beyond me. Like, what is it that from doing this that he enjoys? Um, mm-hmm. I don't really understand, and I don't know if you looked into him much, but he's now the CEO of the top uh, soccer league in India. Um, I saw that. Yeah, which I'm like, okay, well, that's a, seems like a an interesting move, but. Um, I'm sure he's getting paid enough, so it's not like he came off negatively, I guess, from this time at Sunderland. But it is, uh, I was struck, you know, I was a little disappointed we didn't get more time learning from the players and what they were thinking Mm -hmm. during all this. Um, But it is fascinating to think about, you know, these are players, and they had, you know, name players on there, like Oviedo, Kone, Cattermole. These are players that are decent, had been decent Premier League players for many seasons. Right. Um, And to see them just totally crap the bed. um, Yeah. And the championship, and it's got to, A, there's the question that I don't think we've seen explored of what it does to your mind, and that's what the Ross Barkley question is so interesting to me. Like, this guy clearly just checked out. Uh, and we've seen, how many times have we seen players in that space? I'm trying to remember right. the other one that um, maybe it was Joe Hart. Uh, yeah, that I think just checked out for several seasons. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and it is hard. I mean, uh, when I'm getting paid seventy million or seventy thousand pounds a week, I'm not going to feel real pressure to change anything either. Right. Um, right. But it's a it's a weird space to be in, and I the but the coaching stuff is so fascinating to me the the mythos of these coaches simon grayson coming in um and just clearly not working yes and then chris coleman coming in as like this savior piece uh and we'll never really know i think whether he could have done anything with it because of the mm-hmm. situation mm-hmm. um but both of them looking at them and being I, I don't know your opinion but being feeling just underwhelmed by both of them uh, mm-hmm. uh as as leaders and and as thinkers about the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know what to think about that because there's part of me that um, wants to like make fun of English soccer fans for mm-hmm. how they treat coaches. And I like find it like uh, comical <laughs> it, it, at times, like the, the Rolodex of coaches as if that's going to change anything. So in Ellis Short's tenure, like ten years, they had nine coaches. Mm-hmm. And again, that's the like, you pump two hundred million dollars a year into that team, all of a sudden the coach is going to look like a better coach. <laughs> like I, I believe that, and maybe I'm like overstating that, but I'm with you in that it's also true that a coach has a lot of control over culture, 
And while the situation at Sunderland covered in this documentary was so dire and so depressing, the task for a coach was a really tall one. Mm-hmm. But it also was true that Simon Grayson was seemingly like not even close to bridging the gap. Uh, Coleman felt closer. Uh, but I also wished for them another option than like being so all in with their messaging. I wonder mm-hmm. what it would look like. And I'm not a coach at that level. I have no idea what it looks and feels like, but to maybe pull it on a little bit of Adam Silver kind of thing of like, yeah, this is bad and, and we're going to start rebuilding and it's going to go really slow and it's probably going to take three seasons, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like you could use some like, like, um, political gamesmanship and kind of play it a little bit differently and say like we're going to start really small we're going to kind of like reinvent the culture here we're going to build it around these five players um that kind of thing as opposed to like coming in and in uh leaning into the savior narrative Mm -hmm. as opposed to pushing back on the savior narrative like what it would do for you professionally and for the club and for the the players that have to live in that space every day and try and find inspiration well, I think it's for me. It's just I can't imagine walking in there, and I would hope that Chris Coleman did this work before he came in there. But knowing what I know about the way the world works, I'm kind of doubtful mm-hmm. that he did. Um, but like, I cannot fathom showing up at work every day when work requires me to be all in and do this and see a guy. Uh, and I'm sorry, I'm going to keep talking about Ross Barkley, and I don't. I have a lot of sympathy for him. Uh, but at the same time, like if I'm a player coming in there and I go into the weight room and I see Ross Barkley being paid more, like mm-hmm. five, six, eight, twelve, twenty times more than I am, mm-hmm. and he's not playing, um, yeah, that just the toxicity of that is hard to overstate, right? On some level, yeah, I agree. I think that's a great point. And, and it's that- not I say Ross Barkley, but there's there's a number of players that seem to be in that same kind of boat. I mean, Lewis Grabbin's comments. That scene where he's like, I'll see you guys on Monday. And they're like, you know, if I'm on here on Monday, I'll be here forever uh, type mm-hmm. thing. Like those comments were like, ooh, oh, what a weird environment right. to be in. Right. Yeah, and I think that's the part of these like, to use a pretentious term, these like s- cinema verite documentaries or these fly-on-the-wall documentaries. Mm-hmm. Part, of, part of the fun of them is that you see behind these massive organizations that is just humans trying to figure out how to be humans mm-hmm. with the other humans <laughs> and it's no different. And I thought about, um, two things while you're just talking and in that space too. One is, uh, Lionel Messi wanting out of Barcelona and citing dysfunction in the organization. I, I, I believe that organizations could be run better than Sunderland is running it. However, I don't believe that like Barcelona and Man City are like all that much better at day-to-day human resource type stuff. You know, like they're going to every organization on the planet is dysfunctional behind the scenes and others just manage their image better than others or pay more to manage their image. So I don't doubt that Lionel Messi and his father are hard to deal with, who is his agent. I also don't doubt that there's dysfunction at Barcelona. It's just we're not allowed to see it. Um, well, yeah, I think that there's, um, for me, like, so that I think there's another moment when, and I think a lot of us think this way, that, like, for a coach, there's three things they need to be able to do, right? They need to be able to motivate their players, um, uh, 
train them and be tactically astute about how to do that. But I think that what you really see when we look at the best of the best, whether it's Greg Popovich or Jurgen Klopp or Pep Guardiola or uh, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but Bill Belichick, um, is those guys really control the whole organization. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just those aspects. They're also controlling the nutrition. They're also controlling you know, free agency moves. And it can work mm-hmm. when I think you don't have one player. I think about um, maybe Abramovich and um, – Mourinho being the best example mm-hmm. of this is like, mm-hmm. I don't think Mourinho had all of that stuff, but he had Abramovich to help him with it. And right. so together they can make it work. But that's a lot harder to find in some ways than that, uh, than those clops and folks that make it. If they can do everything, then you've kind of found yourself an amazing unicorn. And they're going right. to fail at some point, but for that time they have it, uh, it is an amazing thing to be around. And I think that's what you see at Barcelona is that as soon as it's run by – or maybe this is where I'll mention that I watched Ford versus Ferrari this week, um, mm-hmm. which is where you really see that you know this uh, these committee structures and these corporate structures are designed in some ways to be failures. I think, right, right, uh, and that's what we see is that you just really hard to find five folks to run a football club that all agree with each other and can work together to get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think of Popovich's. Uh, six-hour dinners with players, mm-hmm. right, and things like that. And uh, I do not see Simon Grayson having that same type of, like, human connection with his players at Sunderland. Um, well, and just that he wasn't given any control over anything, it seemed like. And he mm-hmm. didn't seem to fight for it. I mean, those, right. I think there were meetings like the where they're like, this is what we're looking at transfer-wise, and he's kind of like, oh, okay. You're like, well, no, you need to, like – if you don't agree with that, you have to, you have to be assertive and aggressive and like, uh, but at the same time, like, you know, he probably didn't have the capacity to do anything really. And so maybe he sees that and is just trying to do the best he can. Right. Uh, one quick thing that is meaningless that just popped in for me of talking about players being resentful about other players getting paid. Uh, I feel that it's worth mentioning that Bobby Bonilla is getting his yearly check from (laughs) the Florida Marlins today for $1.2 million, which he will continue to get until 2033 or something like that. Um, You know, what's interesting about that to me uh, is that ESPN did, of course, I I hate these stories because ESPN every freaking July 1st or whatever posts the same story. Yeah, uh, but at one point they did like a breakdown about how Bobby Bonilla's essentially was screwed by taking this deal, right? Uh, and that the Marlins it was a great bit of business because now they get to continue to invest that money right. every year. Uh, and Bobby Bonilla, like the return on his investment, he he essentially this argument was like if he had invested it even just like market average or below average investments. He would have uh, made like nine million more than he's going to make over the course of this uh, contract that's been extended. So it's all mm-hmm. just uh, a fascinating bit of uh, uh, th- thing that's hard for most of us to understand because they're talking right. in levels of money that most of us will never fathom. Right. Exactly. The commas obscure reality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh. Speaking of obscuring reality, I think that's my kind of like final question to to throw out here. And I'm trying to think of the best way to ask it. Um, I'll, I'll throw a couple things out to kind of attach to it. But um, 
I think in many ways this documentary shows some of the harms of professional sports in general and English football specifically. Mm-hmm. I also think it shows some of the harms that come with not uh, being honest or being real about how these sports teams exist in specific cities and societies. However, I wonder if the way it was made, and I guess this is where I point to the fact that it was made by Sunderland fans, obscures a little bit of those harms by maybe kind of just sidestepping how bad it really can be. Um, So like one statistic I thought I came across was that um, a third of Sunderland children grow up in poverty. Mm Mm-hmm. The documentary makes a big case about Sunderland being a post-industrial city and kind of makes that an absolute sort of statement that that's all Sunderland is, is a poor, rough, working-class, post-industrial, pro-Brexit city. Uh, and I, I, I wonder if they're exploiting our like desire for underdog and our desire for... like rough and tough, hardworking people or, or whatever that is. I, I'm not even really sure. But the the last piece is like I wondered what this documentary would look like if it was made by like Ava DuVernay or Steve James as opposed to Sunderland supporters. Well, and I have to confess that they made several editorial choices that I found really hard to justify. Um, and maybe that's just because – they didn't have any other choices, but the fans that they've chosen to highlight um, mm-hmm. yeah. certainly lead into that narrative. And the fact yeah. that we don't see a single conversation with the Sunderland supporter who's a person of color right. um, is a very hard thing to unpack uh, in some ways. Um, right. And so I think it also leads to this question of like, okay, so you know, for a long time, soccer was the sport of the working class. Um, in England, uh, you know, I think, um, fever pitch, um, a book that I greatly admire kind of changed some of that stuff. Um, but it seems like in some ways this is still building that narrative of, Hey, this is about hardworking folks doing hardworking things. Right. Um, in the same way, I mean, I think we talked a little bit last year, uh, about the, the Liverpool piece, uh, about, you know, the history yeah. of Liverpool and what the, the club means for them. And I, I have to confess that every time I see that, like this club is so important to this city, it, it I find it really very troubling. Um, mm-hmm. Particularly because I see these uh, uh, fans that say things like, "Don't these players understand they're playing for us?" And I'm like, "They're not playing for you." Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. let's be very clear here: they're not playing for you. They don't really care about you. Right. Um, yeah. Indeed, and that that's a part of it that like. Um, I, I found one point really moving. Maybe the most moving part of it for me was when Chris Coleman was talking about how where he feels most connected with Sunderland as a club is the guy that opens the door in the morning mm-hmm. and the chefs that work in the building. Mm-hmm. And like when he thinks of like who he is coaching for, that's who he is thinking of, which like accentuates the point that like our communities are actually really small. Like like where we find inspiration from other humans is often like very individual and very close knit. Um, And so even Chris Coleman, who's the head of the club at that point in time, was not really playing for the city, (laughs) you know. And so I, 
it's a part of it all that I think gets obscured by not really digging in fully there. Well, and I think it's also like, you know, I'll go back to my Arsenal experience. Like the stuff with Granite Jacka just seemed so, uh, you know, with him flicking off his own fans mm-hmm. uh, while being sent off, uh, taken off, it just seems so unmendable. And yet he now seems back in the squad um, because he has those relationships with the other players and they respect him immensely. And I think it speaks volumes to who you're actually playing for there. Um, But then the big question it raises for me is how powerful would it be if, you know, if we were started a football club um, that we support and we actually like radically supported the players in it. And like when they Mm -hmm. were failing, we're like, Hey man, what's like, what can we do to help you as opposed to like, you're not fit to wear the shirt, which how many times did we hear that uh, in mm-hmm, the first episode mm-hmm. of this documentary? Right. Um, yeah. and But also just the negative, like the way that these folks have their emotions wrapped up in it. And I think we've been there. I don't know if you were ever at the level that I was, um, but you know, there are many times when I'd have a weekend ruined by yeah. uh, a sporting event that I wanted to see go one way, go a different way. Um, mm-hmm. And at some point, and it's been recent, you know, like the past seven years or so, I've realized how unhealthy that is uh, mm-hmm. and have moved kind of away from it. But it's a, it seems very pervasive in this kind of um, society where we seem to link the football club with undue importance uh, in their community. Um, and I think it's, mm-hmm. we, it's not universal. It's not, excuse me, it's not specific just to soccer teams. I mean, I think there's a lot of football fans that feel that same way. Right. Yeah, it's the, my last one for just to throw out there was the Reds losing three in a row in the first round of the 2012 playoffs. That was it for me. I, and I was so upset that it was upset enough to be like, I'm never doing this again. <laughs> this is so stupid. I'm, I'm just not going to let this happen again. Well, and I, to go back to fever pitch, I think that – Perhaps the most interesting thing in there was like how his fandom ebbed and flowed mm-hmm. uh, and how we can all perhaps should expect our fandom to ebb and flow and that there will be mm-hmm. times when we're all in and there'll be other times right. when we're not. Uh, and that that seems like a much more productive and healthy way of looking at it than, hey, if you're not all in on this, you're nothing uh, right. type thing. You're not a real fan at that point, right. which how many yeah. times have we talked about those kind of things. How I mean, it's, there's almost no worse insult than to be a bandwagon fan of a team. Right. Well said. <laughs> but anyway, I uh, I also I had many flashbacks to Among the Thugs while watching this. I don't know if you found yourself thinking back mm-hmm. to that as well. Absolutely, yeah. It just felt so. I mean, in some ways, I think the Premier League would think have us think it's so far from that, but it seems so close to see. You know, uh, fifty uh, lower middle class white guys that are angry about something stuffed on a bus and driving to another community together. Just as like, mm-hmm. ooh, ooh, okay, that seems like a bad idea, but okay. Mm-hmm. The other thing that was in my mind is I was kind of watching and thinking about these things is something that was in the news this week that seemingly has nothing to do with soccer, but I think it has to do with how we contextualize underdogs or that whole concept in sports. And that is uh, McCurr Maker Mm -hmm. uh, signing with Howard University. Um, So 
this is a high school senior that his family is a basketball family. But nonetheless, I think he was the number 11 recruit, five-star recruit, and his mm-hmm. choices were Duke, Kentucky, and Howard. And he chose Howard and is making it a, a statement and, and saying he hopes other uh, black recruits do what he is doing and valuing the HBCUs as opposed to the universities that literally only exist as a stepping stone for these guys to make millions of dollars. Um and so there's a whole lot to talk about there. I feel like it could be a whole episode, uh, his doing so. But that is playing for Howard, right? Like, yeah. you know, like like a fan of Howard watching him play next year will feel a connection with him that I think is true and authentic. And for better or worse, our relationship with sports is messed up in so many ways. But that's very, very different than uh, these kids that are coming through Duke and Kentucky right now. Um, they're going to live the student experience for about six months. And even that, is, it, it's a really bizarre experience of being on campus. You're not really a college student. So I don't know, him going to Howard, and even if he's only there for six months, um, it's a statement. Well, it is, and I have to... Um... Uh, there's a, there's a couple other guys that from like the next recruiting class that were talking in the same direction. Um, mm-hmm. and it's interesting because it you know on the some level I give them a ton of credit and think it's fantastic, but I think it's also important to look at some of the context. And one of the points that this recruit for the next level next year I think was making was that look we've seen it doesn't matter. I mean uh, you know Ben Simmons went to LSU and was awful. The team was awful mm-hmm. while he was there. Mm-hmm. We've seen these other guys go to these places and their teams have been awful and it hasn't impacted their draft status at all. Right. So what's the harm in doing that? And so I think right. that there's a recognition um, that it's both a, a chance for them to throw support behind something they believe in but also they're not they don't feel like they're risking something in the way they might have a few years ago to have done so. Right. And it makes me think of like if you're 57th on the top 100, like maybe then UK and yeah. Duke is more of a necessity for you to make sure you get paid the following year. Well, I think we've seen that. I mean, there's a guy that was committed to UVA, uh, Sasha Kalea Jones, um, who decommitted because he went from like number 75 to number 45 in the recruiting class and Kentucky showed interest in him. Right. Uh, and then he went and has played like nothing. I think he's transferred right. at this point, but that, right. that draw of being like, Oh, I can be in that tier at the top right. uh, was enough to get him there. Right. But anyway, interesting, yeah. interesting times. I would recommend the documentary. I do think there's interesting questions in there about uh, whitewashing, Mm-hmm. That absolutely that discussion of uh, how destructive this kind of fandom really is, um, and I think it's a missed opportunity in some ways to have a broader mm-hmm. conversation. But um, I don't know. I I just uh, setting realistic expectations has a lot to do with how you much you enjoy a product or not. And I have to say I enjoyed this one because I didn't didn't expect too much out of it. Exactly the same experience for me. So anyway, we're, we're always come down, I think on the side of humanizing things and it's uh, it does a pretty good job of humanizing Simon Grayson, Martin Bain and Chris Coleman. Yep. But all right. Well, anything else you wanted to share there, man? Uh, I think I'm good there. You ready for some trivia? I am ready for some trivia. 
Okay, so last week I asked you, um, I had set it up by saying there are rumors that the first football game at UVA was played in 1871 against Washington and Lee. It was not until 1892 that UVA established the South's oldest rivalry by splitting games with what university? Did you have a guess? I did, uh, and my guess was wrong uh, in West Virginia. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. But I, I know the team you're talking about and knew this. I just uh, yeah. I, uh, neglected it in the moment, so carry on. Yeah, so the rivalry is with North Carolina. And I thought one thing that would be interesting to look into is the phrasing of the South's oldest rivalry and to kind of like – I would be interested to hear uh, a Southern sports historian kind of talk about what that means and where that came from. But at any rate, North Carolina. So uh, this week's kind of a – I'll just go for it. Okay, here we go. Um, <laughs> I was looking for largest payrolls in sports. Hmm. And – the most recent like solid data I could find on it was from 2015. So this is a little bit dated, but I think it makes a point, and I would imagine it hasn't changed much since 2015. Uh, the 10 largest payrolls in sports, eight of them are soccer. Hmm, okay. And I'll go ahead and tell you that two of them are baseball. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you wanted to go- try and name them. Uh, all of them, okay. That's what I mean. It's a lot. So if that's the... We could do like who's the top or we could do what are the two baseball or something like that. But if you wanted to try and name all of them, I thought we could do that. Okay. I'm game for this. Um, do you want to like think about it and then next week you could name them and see how you well, did? Because no, I'm like going to research it between next, now and oh, next okay. week. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be okay. hard for me to not look it up. All right. Try and come up with 10 real quick. All right. So uh, Yankees, uh, Red Sox, um, uh Real, Barcelona, um, Man City, Chelsea, uh, Man United, um, Juventus, and Bayern. I don't know how many that is. Um, that's um, that's ten. That's ten. Okay. Yeah. So that's my guess. Okay, you got you got six right. Okay. All right. Yankees, Real, Barca, Man City, Chelsea, Bayern. Uh, oh, you got seven right, Man United. Okay. Um, your team's on there, Arsenal. Okay. They were 10th in 2015. Uh, the Dodgers uh, were fifth. Oh, okay. Dodgers over there. I should have figured yeah. that. Oh. And um, PSG. Uh, okay, yeah. Yeah. I don't think of PSG in that category, but with Neymar and some of those other folks, I guess they got to be. Yeah. The actual total most was LA Dodgers. They were $272 million. Interesting. Uh, but, yeah, average annual salary PSG was first at 9.1. Okay. Yeah, but Arsenal was $173 million. Hmm. It's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. It's so much yeah. money. It's unfathomable money. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, good luck if you're a Sunderland supporter. <laughs> it raises all kinds of interesting questions for me. And I will i don't want to get too deep into this now. But uh, one of the reasons I love Arsenal um, is because I feel like they don't do some of the other stuff the other teams do. I mean, they have never gone on like a buying spree in the level of Chelsea or Man City has mm-hmm. done. Um 
But it's interesting to hear them that high. Uh, and I, they often get criticized for being the most expensive team right. to go watch, perhaps in Europe. I don't know, but it's yeah. certainly in England. Um, and on some level, I'm not mad at that because I wish that more teams would like actually pass on how much it, how expensive this sport is and it would give right. a better appreciation of what is really happening here, that this is not what we think it is um, right. anymore. Right. But anyway... All right. Well, cool. All right. Well, uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, I hope you have a good July 4th. I think we'll be avoiding most contact with other people today. So, uh, uh, But wherever you're listening to this, please give us a rating and review and be safe. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks, man. To pay attention to the voices that are doing the framing. What we're talking about is the consumerism. Withheld and allotted only. Nobody's calling LeBron Black Jesus. I was a huge Dikembe Mutombo fan.